Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We took a pause from our series through the book of Acts through Advent, and uh, the old adage says that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think it's true. I'm really excited to jump back into Acts, um, and I hope that you are as well. One challenge, however, with these breaks is that, uh, you know, as we preach through books of the Bible systematically, the benefit is that we look at one text very mindful of what the text before said, because we just looked at it last week. Well, such is not the case today. It's been six weeks since we looked at this, so if you're doing the RMM reading plan, you have an advantage because you are, I think today you read Acts chapter 8, so you've already read a bit of a refresher. For the rest of us, we need an on-ramp to get back up to speed in terms of where we are today. So just very quickly, Acts 1 to 3 is, it recounts the story of the ascension and of Pentecost, and in Acts 1 to 3, we come away just thinking that like heaven has arrived on earth. The the church is growing, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to fellowship and to the prayers, and they are bold in their witness, and again, miracles are happening, the church is growing, it feels like we have arrived, right? Glory is here. But then we turn to chapter 4, and we catch our first glimpse of persecution. And in chapter 4, Peter and and John are arrested, they spend a night in prison, and we realize we're not in heaven yet. And we move into Acts 5, and we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and we realize that even within this sweet church that we've been so idealizing for the first three chapters, there's hypocrisy already in the church. We shouldn't be shocked when we see it even in our own midst today. Scandal's already in the church. We're not in heaven yet. And yet, in spite of the scandal and in spite of the pushback, the church continues to grow. They continue to thrive. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem are becoming more and more infuriated by this, and that's where we pick up in our text this morning. And so I hope you're turning your Bible already to Acts chapter 5. As we do this, admittedly, we're taking a big bite today. I'm going to read a a large section of the text, Um, but we have the privilege of being able to do that because the story of persecution in chapter 4, as we will see, uh, has a great deal of overlap with this story in 5. So a lot of what we've already covered is going to prepare us this morning, and that will enable us to to scale up and make some big picture observations, okay? So that's the approach. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 17 all the way to the end of verse 42. Before we do that, I'm just going to invite the Lord to speak to us and prepare us. Heavenly Father, we love you. I thank you for a time of quiet, a time for us to reflect on what you would have for us. Lord, we're inundated all week long with opinions, opinions from the media, opinions from our spouse, opinions from ourself, our friends, our co-workers. Uh, Lord, we've heard what the world thinks about life all week long, and we just acknowledge in humility, we need to hear what, what you say. Uh, we need to hear your truth. And so we come with great confidence. Lord, some of us come tired, some of us come distracted, some of us come perhaps discouraged, feeling defeated. Um, Lord, but we just acknowledge that no matter where we are, God, you remain constant. And you have a word for us today. And I thank you that you're going to speak to each and every one of us in just the way that we need. To that end, we ask for the help of your spirit. I ask for the help of your spirit as I preach. Guard my tongue. I ask for the help of your spirit as we listen. Guard our ears and our hearts and our minds. Lord, we thank you that as your word goes forth, it never returns void. And that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. So please speak, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles 
and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Judas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed. It came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I mentioned today, our approach is we're going to pull up over this text and we're going to make some big picture observations. But before we do that, I want to just pull out some some details that we, we must see before we move forward. Luke highlights that these religious leaders in Jerusalem are motivated by something. What is it that they're motivated by? Remember, it's at the very beginning. It's jealousy. They're motivated by jealousy because their power is slipping. It's important we see that. They're motivated by jealousy because their authority is slipping. They're jealous because this new movement that they keep trying to suppress just won't stay down. And with each passing day, it's becoming more and more clear that this, this faction, whatever it is, these followers of Jesus, it's not just a new little element of Judaism. 
this is, this is something new. This isn't just Judaism 2.0. This threatens everything that they're building their lives upon, and they are jealous. The presence of God, which used to be reserved for the holies of, holy of holies in the temple, is now being experienced in the lives of these followers of Jesus. The old priesthood is, is still serving within the inner courts And yet now there's this kingdom of priests and they're serving in the outer courts. And in fact, they're serving all the way out into the streets. Demons are being cast out and the sick are being healed. And lost men and women are being brought into relationship with God and none of it is coming under their structure. In fact, people are flocking to Jerusalem. We saw this in chapter 4. They're flocking to Jerusalem for an encounter with the living God. Well, that's what people have always done. Except now, people are flocking to encounter the presence of the living God, and they're not going to the temple. They're going to the followers of Jesus, and that is where they're encountering the presence of God. And these leaders see this. They were the, they were the leaders under the old covenant, the old system, and they are jealous because they see that everything is changing. So they do what they did in chapter 4. They arrest the apostles again. They make them sit in prison overnight again, trying to sober them, trying to get them to learn a lesson. They assemble the most powerful leaders in Jerusalem again to try and intimidate them. They warn them not to continue preaching in Jesus' name again. This time they're ready to kill the apostles until one of their leaders, Gamaliel, interjected and he spoke better than he knew. Gamaliel is actually the teacher of the apostle Paul. This is a a big figure in Judaism. He speaks to the group and he says... So in the present case, I tell you, this is verse 38, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now Gamaliel spoke better than he knew. Gamaliel was not an advocate for the Christians, just to be clear. He was not trying to make a case for these Christians that he was sympathetic for. No, Gamaliel was just a seasoned leader. You've been around such leaders. And he knew. He said, listen, young men, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. And he gives two examples. Remember that leader? He rose up 400 followers, but you know what? We killed him, and the whole thing came to naught. And then that leader, and he rose up, and, but again, it came to naught. And so just calm down and sit back. This whole thing is going to fizzle out. And hey, and if it doesn't, you know, then you might be found to be opposing God. Well, he was right, but not in the way that he anticipated. God gave his blessing to those who aligned themselves with his son, and everything changed. The old, temper, the old temple is no longer the place where we meet with God. The old priesthood is no longer the, the place where we meet the mediators between God and man. Judaism has officially rejected the Messiah. The old wineskin has burst, to use Jesus' language. God is doing something new. And this developing theme is is going to shape the rest of the book of Acts. And in fact, it's going to trace all the way to the very end in Acts 28 where we find the the pronouncement, the conclusion. We're going to get there. We're going to say a lot about that in the weeks ahead. But today, because that's going to be the whole theme of the book, we're we're going to move over and we're going to focus on the result of this collision. We're going to focus on this, this persecution. And in particular, we're going to focus on this developing pattern that Luke would have us see. As I mentioned, we see this persecution in chapter 4, and then we see it in verse 5. It's a pattern of persecution. In fact, as I was preparing to preach, uh, one of the things I did on Tuesday is I just, I turned to the book of Acts, and I thought, before I write anything, I want to just read the entire book of Acts as a whole, 
Because one of the challenges in stepping out for six weeks is that you can lose the big picture. And so I thought, I'm going to read the whole thing. And in particular, because this is a story about persecution, I want to just keep a keen eye to the stories of persecution in the book of Acts. Where do we see them? Are there, are there themes? Are there patterns? Well, as it turns out, there are stories of persecution in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 12, 13, 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28. It's a bit of a pattern. I counted 17 distinct, that is, separate and serious attacks upon the church, which suggests to me that Luke means for us to come away from this book with the understanding that the story of the New Testament church is the story of ongoing persecution. And if we're not seeing that as we read the New Testament, then perhaps we are reading with rose-colored glasses, which I suspect, as North Americans, we probably are from time to time. This is the pattern of our story. And we shouldn't be surprised by it, because Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And he goes on to say, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, it's important for us to recognize this before we go a step further. It's important for us to recognize, you know, especially, this is true for all of us, but can I speak to the parents, especially? If we want to be faithful in raising up our children, we really need to recognize this. This moment, this cultural moment we're living in, where our faith was at times celebrated, but certainly tolerated, according to God's word and according to the history of the church, is rare and it is temporary. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the season that we've been living in, where we've been able to exercise our faith, uh, with great freedom from persecution, great freedom from fear. But let's recognize this is, a, this is a brief window, and eventually the window will close according to the Word of God. The tide will turn and the temperature will rise, and at that time, we will come face to face with the reality that Jesus said, to follow me is to take up your cross. It's costly. And we need to recognize that. I, I, for myself, I, as a Christian leader, I would say for any Christian leader in North America right now, if we are not preparing our people for the reality of what is so clearly coming, then we are being negligent to the point of, you wonder if we should be in the office. Parents, if we are not recognizing what is coming and intentionally preparing our children for that reality, the negligence, this is coming. Luke recorded this pattern so clearly as an example for us, and perhaps in our context, even as a wake-up call. So let's lean in and learn. I want to pull out four lessons. Okay? First, Luke brings us to see the cause of persecution. So when Peter and John were arrested in chapter 4, do you remember what was prohibited? What did the Sanhedrin say? They commanded them to stop speaking about Jesus. And do you remember how they responded? Peter said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And now true to his word, we, we went on to read in chapter 4, that Peter and John and the rest of the church, they continued to boldly preach and proclaim. They continued to declare the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. 
Now, we don't know how much time elapsed between that story in chapter 4 and our text today, but it probably wasn't much more than a week, maybe two weeks. They were arrested again. And the Sanhedrin, at this point, they're fuming, and they say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And that right there, that statement, that declaration of an authority that supersedes the authority of the Sanhedrin is the reason why the church in Jerusalem came under persecution. And it is the reason why every church will eventually come under persecution. The declaration that there is an authority that stands over and above any earthly authority is the cause of persecution every time. Every leader, every government, every king whose name is not Jesus is tainted in one shape or form by sin. And let me be clear, I'm a leader. So uh, this isn't me just saying like, oh, those guys out there are tainted by sin. Every leader whose name is not Jesus is tainted in one way, shape, or form by sin. And when we apply that to, you know, civic leaders, our governmental leaders, that means that eventually our leaders will make some kind of demand upon us that will go in, in direct contradiction to what Jesus commanded us to do. Like what we see in Acts 4 and Acts 5. A demand like, you must celebrate this sin. A demand like, you must not share your gospel anymore. A demand like, you must edit your Bible to fit with our cultural convictions. And you certainly can't preach on those texts. And when those demands come, in that moment, we will need to say no. I didn't write this, so I'm going to be very careful. But over the last three years... This, this is what we've been seeing in the Canadian church. And I want to tread very carefully, so be gracious with me in, in how you hear this. But we had brothers and sisters who were Christians, and they disagreed with us. They felt as if this line was crossed. They felt as if these authorities over us went a step too far. Now, we disagreed. But, but they felt in their conscience and their conviction that they had gone too far, and so they drew a line, and they, and they paid the cost. Now, again, we, we don't agree on where that line is, but the reality is someday we will hit that line. And in that day, there will be a call that we will need to say no. And persecution is initiated when authorities collide. Persecution is initiated when authorities collide. And brothers and sisters, if you're paying any attention at all, you can see that we are on course for a massive collision of authorities. The day is fast upon us when we'll be forced to clearly declare a side. And that declaration will come at a great cost. Now, it could come in the form of fines. It could come in the form of, you know, losing charitable status. It's okay. Now, it could come in the form of public humiliation and scrutiny. It could come in the form of imprisonment, as we see here. In chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. He's, he's killed. It could come in the form of a death sentence. Pastor Wang Yi of Early Rain Covenant Church in China, this story was from last year, I believe, he was sentenced to nine years in prison for refusing to submit to his government's demand that they, that they distort the message of the church. The government wanted to step in and, and change the message, and he said, you can't do that. It's God's message. In advance of his arrest, he wrote, I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom 
to tell those who deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. There's an authority higher than their authority. And that statement, that conviction, is the cause of persecution. So if and when that day comes for us, we shouldn't be surprised what brings it about. It will be the moment when those authorities collide. And in that moment, we will need to be bold enough and courageous enough to to look to Christ and with love and respect say, no, this far and no further. Now, how do we prepare for that? If, if, if it's true, and, and perhaps you're not convinced, and okay. If it's true, however, that that day is coming, then what do we do to prepare? Well, that's the second thing we learn in this passage, the preparation for persecution. And I was struck by the fact that the preparation that we see modeled in the book of Acts is not the preparation that we would instinctively gravitate towards. It's not the kind of preparation that, in fact, we've, we've modeled in recent days. So flip back. I want you to see this with me. Flip back to chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 23 to 24. So Peter and John have just come out of prison. They were just wrongly imprisoned. It was not just. They were just told that they can't speak about Jesus. Their, their free speech has been denied. What do they do? It says, when they were released beginning in verse 23 of chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So what we see here is their response was not grumbling. It wasn't murmuring. It wasn't a petition, right? Their response was a prayer meeting. They responded and they brought their their urgent needs and their requests. They brought them to God corporately together. They pleaded for help. And as we see in chapter 5, God actually answered the prayer. Everything that they asked for in this prayer, God answered. They asked for boldness. God gave them boldness. They asked for God to go before them and work signs and wonders and miracles, and God went before them and did just that. And in chapter 5, they're imprisoned again, but they're imprisoned with, with the boldness that they asked for. And now you might say, well, that's, that's not necessarily a pattern. That's We can learn from what they've done, but is that really a pattern? Well, again, I want you to see this. So flip ahead to chapter 12, verse 5, where Peter is arrested again. And it says in chapter 12, verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And if you flip ahead to verse 12, when the doors open and he's released and he gets out of there miraculously, it says, when he realizes he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, so he goes to this house, where, what? Many were gathered together and were praying. Now this is late at night. So he finds this late night prayer meeting where many from the congregation are assembled. Again, fervently pleading with the Lord to, to help their brother, to, to work in the situation. Well, is it a pattern? We'll flip ahead to verse chapter 16. And in chapter 16, now we see Paul and Silas, and they're in prison. And in verse 25, we catch this glimpse of what they're doing. You know, are they in there? Are they in there grumbling? Are they in there trying to figure out what, you know, what their legal responsibility? No, it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
And so we find that the church is praying in prison and the church is praying outside of the prison and the church is assembling together and they are corporately praying in response to all that has taken place. And so how do we prepare for peace? If, if that's coming, if that persecution is coming, how do we prepare? We learn how to pray. And more specifically, we learn how to pray together. Because when, when it starts crashing in and when the... the persecution starts to press us, we need one another. We need a vibrant prayer life where we can come together with brothers and sisters and we can declare true things about God and we can look to him and and make bold requests and know that he hears us. We're going to need the faith of the people sitting next to us in those moments. Now, someone will object and say, well, you're being a bit too simplistic here. Surely there's, there's more that we must do just because it's not mentioned in the book of Acts. Are you suggesting that there's no place for peaceful protest? Are you saying that we shouldn't raise up leaders, you know, politicians and lawyers to be salt and light in the system? Are, are you saying that we shouldn't set aside savings for potential legal fees? Are you saying we should just wave the flag and surrender the culture? And to be clear, no, I'm not saying any of that. Of course, wisdom says that there's lots of things that we can do and that we should do and we will do, of course. But here's what I am saying, and hear this. As the New Testament authors prepare us for these trials that lie ahead, They don't say a lick about savings, and they don't say a lick about our politics, but they do consistently and emphatically point us to the necessity of corporate prayer. Therefore, the implication is, if if we are so worked up and riled up about our politics and our protests and our strategizing, but we haven't stepped foot in a corporate prayer meeting in years, then the Word of God would seem to suggest that our priorities are exactly out of order. That that needs to come first. That that needs to be where we put our hope. Here's the lesson. We're in a spiritual fight. And it will be spiritually fought. And so we must surrender ourselves to him. Now some of you, not all of you, and I don't know who, some of you need this challenge. So I just want to listen close and decide if it's you. You know, you're busy with your job. And you're busy with your family. And you just feel like you cannot afford to fit one more thing into your busy life. But I need you to see that if this is what lies ahead, you can't afford not to fit prayer into your busy life. And in particular, you can't afford not to find a way to pray together with God's people. So let's solve that. If that's you, let's solve it. Listen, we've tried things. We've tried the early morning prayer meeting so you can go before work. We've tried the late night meeting so you can be with people after work. We've tried, you know, the Zoom prayer meeting so you can sit in your house. We've tried the Sunday morning meeting so you just build it into the day. What, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. You know, if you're here and you just feel like I, that, none of those solutions work for me, you tell me the solution that works and we'll build it. We'll do it. But we need to learn how to pray together. I've heard stories of some of you who, who pray with your coworkers because you're all assembled. You start every morning with a prayer meeting. I love that. We have moms who are, who are doing a prayer meeting on a Friday at home because they can't get out somewhere else. We need to bring the kids. Love it. Each of us has our own unique challenges, which means that, that I cannot just build a solution that's going to fit everyone. But if you've got something that would work, I'm all ears. And I just say that as your brother and as your pastor. Let's do it. Let's find a way. Because what I'm seeing here, if I'm reading it correctly, is that we cannot be the people who enter a season of persecution without first learning how to pray together. The lessons we've learned thus far could possibly be triggering an alarm in your heart and in your mind, I would say, if that's true, that's appropriate. 
This should be triggering an alarm. However, it shouldn't be triggering anxiety in your heart. Because the third lesson we learn here is the limitation of persecution. And uh, I love this. In my first draft of this sermon, this one was really hard. If I'm honest, this is draft six, which is rare. And the first draft looked very different. Um, But I was really struck by this scene because it, it feels to me as if Luke means for us to see the humor in this story. He, he presents it almost in a humorous way. You have the Sanhedrin. These are the, these are the power brokers in Jerusalem. The most powerful religious political leaders. They're slowly meandering into their meeting. You know, they're, they're calling in the assembly. Just, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we let them spend the night in prison. I can just imagine someone saying, yeah, just leave them there a little longer, you know, as they catch up on the day today. Let them sit in this for a little bit. And then when they're ready in their seats, they look over at the guard and they give them the signal, you know, go get, get the prisoners. And the guard goes to the prison, and, and yet the guard looks in and he realizes they're gone. They're, they're, he comes back and he tells this group, all confident, ready to lay the smack down on these guys. He, he says, hey, I, the guards are there, the door's locked, but they, they're gone. And then someone runs in. They're, they're in the temple, and they're teaching the people. They're in the place where you, you are supposed to be the authority. You're supposed to be the spokesman of the temple. But God opened the door, and he sent them in. They're in the temple. They're teaching the people. And so then the guards have to, like, gingerly bring them back in. They're afraid people are going to beat them up. And they have to, you know, sneak them back into the room. And what are we meant to see in this scene? We're meant to see that with all of their power and influence in the prison and the guards and all of it, they couldn't keep the apostles in prison for a second longer than God had ordained. We're going to see this again and again. Chapter 12, the prison door swings open again. Chapter 16, the prison door miraculously swings open again. Angels are opening the doors. Earthquakes are opening the doors. God's got the keys. That's the lesson. He has the keys. Sometimes we're going to feel powerless. Sometimes we are going to feel like the authorities who are over us are free to do whatever they so please. And the the message here is that they are not. They are not. God holds the keys. And he can open the door whenever he pleases. If anything, this is really the first point that we learned, just applied pastorally. What was the first point? The first point reminded us that this, the cause of this collision is that we declare that there's authority that stands over all these authorities who are over us. Right? That causes problems. But here in three, it's also our great comfort. We remind ourselves, hey, there is an authority who stands over all of these authorities who are over us. Which means that nothing happens to us unless... Our God, who is in control over all of it, so allows, so decrees. Praise God for that. And so prison doors are swinging open, and it's fantastic, but here's the thing. We also see in chapter 7 that Stephen is stoned to death, which means that the doors don't always swing open. In Acts 21, the apostle Paul is put in prison, and when we conclude the book of Acts in chapter 28, he's still in prison. And so I'm not suggesting that, you know, we're untouchable. You know, in this, in this earthly life, we're touchable. And yet in the midst of it all, there's a God who is good, and he's, he's ordaining and orchestrating and working. He's sovereign over every bit of it, and that truth must be locked into our minds as we move forward. Now, why is it that some doors open and some don't? In my third iteration, that was the sermon. I wanted to preach a whole sermon on that question. Why do some doors open and some remain shut? It's a good question, isn't it? What is God working in all of it? Think about this story for a moment. I don't, not to get on a tangent, but it's so odd. God opens this door, 
And, and they go out and they minister in the temple in the morning for like, what, an hour? Not very long, because the assembly's gathering in the morning. So they, they preach for maybe an hour and people hear an hour of teaching. But then God allows them to get arrested again. Only this time, now the, the people who arrested them are angry, so they also get a beating, which they probably wouldn't have gotten the first go-around. What was the purpose? Was it to teach the, a lesson to the religious leaders that you're on the opposite side of God's side? Probably. Was it to teach a lesson to the apostles that God holds the keys? Probably. Was it for the sake of the people who heard the sermon in the temple? Probably. Was it for our benefit? God was doing all kinds of things, and we don't even know the, we don't even know the tip of it. And he's also doing things when the doors don't open. You know, the Apostle Paul is stuck in prison from 21 all the way to 28. But while he's there, he's sharing the gospel with prisoners who wouldn't have heard it otherwise. Sharing the gospel with the guards who wouldn't have heard it otherwise. He's allowed to speak to powerful political leaders in Rome. Would he have had that opportunity if he hadn't been in prison? Probably not. And in the midst of it, I love this, Paul, this like never stop working, dynamo, I'm just going to run until I exhaust myself to death. God puts him in prison and says, now actually you're going to sit. And so what does he do? He writes the book of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. And you start thinking, praise God, the door didn't open. You know, it's like there's, there's wisdom, there's purpose in it. But we don't always see the purpose behind it which means sometimes we're going to pray for the persecuted church and our brother and sister, we're going to hear a story that they were released from prison and they went on to lead a revival. Hallelujah. Then we're going to pray for another brother and he gets beheaded. And God's sovereign in both instances and he's working. And I don't know what he has for us, but I know that he's good. The lesson here, and it's an enormously important lesson, is that over and above whoever may be administering our persecution in this present time is a God who is sovereign over all. As Harry prayed, he is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And he is eternal. And he is infinite. And he is unchangeable in his power and perfection and goodness and glory. His wisdom is justice and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. All persecution is limited by the hand of our sovereign God. Therefore, as Jesus taught us, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Finally, last lesson, and I, I would argue the most jarring lesson of all of them, is the privilege of persecution. We've got to learn that lesson in this passage. Now, and I don't like to qualify a point before I make it, but here I think it's worth qualifying. I am not saying that we should go out looking for a beating. Hear that, especially young people. I'm not saying that. In fact, First Peter, we're taught that, you know, sometimes you go out and you get persecuted and it actually had nothing to do with the gospel. It's just because you're a jerk. And, and, Peter, and that's apparently a thing then. And it's a thing now. And Peter says there's nothing godly about that. There's nothing winsome about that. Don't do it. Don't get persecuted for being a jerk. So don't do that. But then I would also qualify and say... And also, guard your heart from looking longingly at, at persecution as if like, oh, this is the ideal where I want to be. And especially for young men, I think young men feel that, probably young women too, though I've never been a young woman. But there's something heroic about it. And so we look at the persecuted church and we say, oh man, they must be doing it right. I want, I want to be that. I want to be like that. And I would argue that that actually is perhaps not a biblical mindset. Because even the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking to some of these leaders when he was imprisoned, 
he said to them, because they said, what, do you want us to be, in this short time, you want us to be like you, Paul? You want us to be a Christian? He said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. But then he qualifies, except for these chains. Which is to say, Paul's, Paul's like, I, I'm not, I wouldn't wish the persecution on you. Paul teaches us that the persecution, there's glory in it, and there's goodness in it, and God is doing wonderful things in it. Paul tells us in Philippians, I can rejoice exceedingly while I'm in these chains. Nevertheless, Paul's, Paul's like, I wouldn't wish this on you. It's, it's suffering. It's difficult. It's, it hurts. It's awful. And yet, qualifiers aside, we learn in this passage, and yet, it is a tremendous privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And we need to see it. So here, these disciples, these apostles, have received a beating from the Sanhedrin. Now, it doesn't specify what this beating was like, but in the gospel, when Jesus received his beating, it was 39 lashes, and later on in Acts, we're specified that someone received 39 lashes, which suggests that that was probably what was implied here in this beating, 39 lashes, one less than the death sentence. So likely, these brothers are, are beaten and bleeding, and scarred, and yet we read, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. It would have been an agony. You know, let's, let's not skip that detail. They would have been in absolute physical agony. Their robes were likely bloodied. It, in fact, they probably needed assistance. And yet with arms draped over whoever was helping them to drag their way out from the council, they rejoiced. And that suggests to me that these disciples were paying attention when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, practical question. Do you want to be able to rejoice in the midst of persecution? Do you want to be able to sing through the storm of adversity? Well, the Bible teaches that you can only do that. You can only live that out if you deep down in the, in the very fiber of your soul believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your sin has been removed from you, that you are now cleansed and forgiven because Jesus has paid your debt and settled it. And the takeaway from that, and here's, now here's an important lesson for us as North Americans, the good news of that gospel is not that now you're going to have an awesome life. And that's a gospel that, that many do preach in our culture, and it's not the real gospel. It's a lie from the pit of hell, and it won't help you in the season of persecution. The good news of that message is that regardless of how easy or how hard this present life is, it doesn't matter, because Jesus has opened the door for you to receive eternal life. You're going to be in glory with God in the new heavens and the new earth forever. That's the glorious message of the gospel. Resurrection hope, not present hope. A hope that sees beyond the grave and beyond the trial and beyond the persecution. That's the gospel. And so if you have the wrong gospel, 
if you have a gospel that says that this is just so I could be a better dad in this life and I could have a better, I could be better at my work and God will make all my sickness go away every time. If, if your gospel is limited to this present life, then it's a gospel that won't get you through that storm. You need to put your trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. Why, Jesus? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad when others revile you on my account. How can I do that, Jesus? Because great is your reward. Where? In heaven. So Jesus keeps pointing us beyond the storm, the trial, this temporary moment. And Jesus says, you can rejoice and you can be glad because of that. Which means that if your eyes aren't there, then you're going to be very destabilized by the things that are coming. You can only live this out if you believe that you possess a treasure that no earthly trial can touch. So let's go to the doctor here and let's just get an assessment. How are we doing? If you guard your comforts and your earthly treasures and pleasures, if you guard it the way that a dog guards its dinner dish, then that's an indication that your treasure is actually not in heaven, your treasure is here on earth. Anybody have a dog? I don't have a dog anymore, but I remember. You could have the sweetest dog in the world, but if you get in between that dog and their dinner dish, the nicest dog in the world is going to bare their teeth and maybe bite your finger off. It's true. And can I tell you something? There are a lot of Christians out there who think that they're, who think that they're saved, but who have, who have bought a gospel that's only for here. And when you get in between that person and their earthly comforts, their money, their freedom their health, their family, you start to touch those earthly things that they're actually building all their hope on, and they bite at you like a dog guarding its dinner dish, and you lose your finger. It's the truth. And so I would just say, do you want to find out if you're more committed to treasure in heaven than to treasure on earth? Watch and assess how you respond when your earthly treasure is threatened. And I'm preaching to me. Your money your freedom, and your health, and your family, when those things are touched, do you give yourself permission to sin? When those things are touched, do you give yourself permission to grumble and complain? Do you give yourself permission to punch back at the one who's taking it from you, at the one who's threatening it? G. Campbell Morgan is exactly right. He says, the church's gravest danger has never been created by opposition. Pause there. So I'm talking about how it, it sure seems like a collision is coming. It sure seems like this window we've been living in is about to change. You shouldn't come away from that thinking, oh no, woe is us. I'm so fearful. It's going to be so, oh, we're, we're doomed. We're doomed. No, he says, the church's gravest danger has never been created by opposition. When she's been opposed and persecuted, she's been pure and strong. Never until she was patronized did she become weak. I want to conclude, and I'm concluding here, with a word to those of you who may in this moment be feeling a little bit discouraged. Maybe right now you're doing the assessment, and you're looking ahead, and you're feeling a great deal of concern. You're asking questions like, God, do I actually have what it takes? In that moment, am I just going to crumble and fail and prove that my faith is a sham? Maybe that's the inner dialogue you're having right now. First, I would say, I don't want to let you entirely off the hook. It's very possible that the Holy Spirit right now is, is, is pressing something on you. 
and he's showing you that there are some areas in your life that are weak. There are, there are some entrances that you haven't, you haven't bolstered, some, some weak places in the wall. Perhaps God is pressing onto you, and he's saying, listen, no, actually, you have made an idol of your family. You have made an idol of your freedom. You have made an idol of, of your wealth. And you've got you to lay all those things down, just like Jesus said to the rich man. He says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And he says to Jesus, well, just give away all that you have to the poor and then come and follow me. For each and every one of us, there's going to be a thing that we're inclined to wrap our hands around and say, Jesus, you can't have this. Maybe in this moment the Spirit is showing you you're holding on to something. You've got to surrender to Jesus and let it go. Or maybe in this moment he's pressing on you and he's saying, you, have, you need to learn how to pray. You know, you've been ignoring this for years and years and years and you can't afford to keep ignoring this. You need to do something. Or maybe he's, he's showing you, maybe you're here and you're just surprised by all this as if like, where is this in the Bible? And the reason is because you're not reading your Bible. And so you never position yourself to be confronted with these truths and maybe the Spirit's saying, you've got to get into the Word of God. You're going to need it in the days ahead. So maybe the Spirit is doing some things in you. I don't want to let you off the hook. But after having humbly surrendered and being, after having been instructed by the Spirit of God and, and, and built up, because the Spirit only breaks us down so as to build us up. The devil, however, likes to accuse. And so perhaps after having done all of that, there's still a voice that says, you're a loser, and you're going to fail, and you'll never have what it takes in that moment. If, if that's you, I want you to hear this encouragement. There's this amazing book uh, that actually Christy Warren, I don't know if she's here, yeah, The, the, the Quiet Place. Um, the Hiding Place? One of those. The Hiding Place. And it's uh, the story of Corey Ten Boom. And you should read it. It's really helpful. Anyways, she was a woman who went through a, a just terrible, unjust suffering. Um, and early in the book, as a, as a young girl, her, she's confronted with a story of someone who has paid a great cost for their faith. I can't remember if they gave their life. I think they actually lost their hands. Um, and just upon hearing the story, she walked away so broken and she was weeping. She was weeping because she just felt like, I, I don't have what it takes. I won't be able to stand. And so she's weeping, and her dad comes, and Corey Ten Boom's dad is like the, seems to be the wisest guy. I wish that he was in my life. Thankfully, he is in this book. He sits down, and the, the book says, Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey, he began gently. When you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, uh, just before we get on the train. Exactly. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we're going to need things. Don't run out ahead of them, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. So we should prepare, right? Prepare. Oh, and we should pray. If the apostles were praying, we need to pray. But then we should rest in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father will give us what we need when we need it. Whatever comes our way. In chapter 4, the apostles recognized that they needed to plead with God for a boldness that they did not naturally possess. I want to follow their example right now. So would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We do. We love you. We confess to you today that um, we're weak and frail. The strongest person in this room is weak and frail. Lord, the bravest person in this room 
lacks the courage that we'll need. Uh, Lord, in and of ourselves, we don't have the strength for the days that lay ahead. Lord, in and of ourselves, we don't have the strength for, for these days. Lord, a day where here we are in peace and safety, gathering together to worship you. Lord, and still, daily, we find ourselves labored by, by ongoing sin that we're battling with. Lord, plagued with discouragement, depression. Lord, taking two steps back and then one step forward. And so, Lord, we look ahead to, to days of, of persecution, days where we will be exhausted, daily counting the cost. And, Lord, we wonder if any of us will have what it takes. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would right now just fill us with your spirit and remind us of the power of our great God. Lord, where we need to repent, bring repentance. Where we need to change, bring change. Lord, where our faith has become misguided or misplaced, Lord, would you correct us and direct us? I pray that every one of us would have a clear understanding of the glorious gospel. I pray that everyone in this room would be in right standing with you. God, we are so thankful that of no merit of our own, we get to inherit eternal life and glory. We get to be with you forever, even though all have sinned and fallen short because Jesus has done this for us. God, we marvel at this. Help us to marvel more and more. Lord, forgive us for the days when the most amazing news in the history of the world feels mundane. God, give us living and, and transformed hearts today. Lord, maybe there's someone here today who they came in with a heart of stone. I pray that you'd remove it and give them a heart of flesh, that they would see afresh the glory of the gospel, the hope that sees beyond the grave. God, we love you. And for the days ahead, God, make us bold. Make us bold. God, I confess, as a leader in this congregation, I am inclined to the sin of fear and cowardice and grumbling. Those things come so easily and naturally to me. In Jesus' name, remove them from me. Remove them from all of us. Help us to behold our great God and walk forward with great confidence and with the joy of the Lord, a joy unspeakable, full of glory, that we could rejoice in whatever our circumstances and that with love and respect but conviction, we could speak the truth into this world. Lord, in a culture of death, that we would speak life. In a culture that celebrates sin, that we would celebrate you and your glory and your holiness and your perfection. And that we would do all of it with the perfect winsomeness of Jesus, which none of us possesses. Guard us from bringing about persecution by our arrogance and foolishness and sin. Lord, and help us to, to, to walk the narrow path in a way that we can only do enabled by your spirit. So God, please do it. I pray all of this in Jesus' mighty saving name. And now, Lord, as we respond to you in song, I pray that you would preach a better sermon than anything I've ever preached in the hearts of your people now. As we reflect on your word, Lord, and as we look to you, God, I ask all this in great confidence and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?